The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He was not the top rung of the leadership of these chat groups that were focused on January 6th. And there wasn't as much about him or by him in the Telegram chats, but he took the stand and then it turned out the government had found a video of him uh, that looks for all the world like he's pepper spraying police officers. And he had said over and over and over that he uh, never assaulted anybody. And after they showed him some of this footage, they said, now after seeing this and having thought about it overnight, did you assault, did you uh, pepper spray police officers? And he said, I don't recall. So his testimony was pretty bad. I think it hurt him. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 5th, 2023. It is Proud Boys Verdict Day mid-morning. The jury notified Judge Tim Kelly that it had reached a partial verdict, and that partial verdict was guilty of seditious conspiracy for four of the five defendants. A whole lot of stuff went down today, a big day for the Justice Department. There are really only two people who have end-to-end visibility on this trial who are not participants in in it on one side or the other, and we are here with one of them before a live audience, Roger Parloff, who needs no introduction to the Lawfare audience, senior editor at Lawfare, longtime legal reporter, and the man who has live tweeted 61 days of the Proud Boys trial. Roger, how does it feel to have it all done? It feels good. It was it was a bit grueling. It was but it was it was very interesting. I'm sure the jurors feel that much much more. But um, no, it was uh, uh, an amazing experience. When we had you and Brandy Buckman on a few days ago, when this trial went to the jury, you were uh, both actually, I thought, a little bit concerned about the seditious conspiracy charge uh, because of the what you guys called the no plan issue. The jury uh, got to yes or got to guilty on that uh, for four of the five of the defendants. So it's the lead charge. It was the one I think you were most worried about. 
So walk us through what happened here. Why do you think, uh, first of all, to what extent was the defendant who was not convicted on that point differently situated from the others? And secondly, what did it take for the jury to get past the sticking points that you anticipated here? Yeah, well, first, the easier question, which is a little speculative still, but uh, um, why did they acquit Dominic Pizzola while convicting the other four defendants? And I think the likely reasons were um, the other four were all leaders in the Proud Boys. One was the leader, the uh, chairman, uh, Enrique Tario. Uh, the other was the ground leader that day, Ethan Nordeen. Next was Joe Biggs, who might have been the most famous Proud Boy. And um, then there was uh, uh, Zach Reel, who was head of the Philadelphia Proud Boys. And they were all uh, leaders of a chapter that Tario created on December 20th that was aimed at January 6th. It was created, this special chapter was created the day after Trump called for there to be a, a rally on January 6th in the famous Will Be Wild tweet. Uh, Pozzola was very different. He he had only been a proud boy for about two months, if that, as of January 6th. So he was a new recruit. He had already distinguished himself in leadership's eyes, but he was not a leader. He wasn't in on any of the, so this special chapter was called MOSD, Ministry of Self-Defense. He wasn't in on any of those chats before January 2nd. He didn't really participate in them. There's no evidence that he did. And he really didn't know, he, he only knew Tario before the events. There were some of the defendants he had never spoken to or had contact to at all. So it, there were ways to distinguish him and to, to say, well, maybe he wasn't really a part of the conspiracy. He didn't know what was supposed to happen. So this was a logical distinction to draw. And so for two of the conspiracy counts, um, they acquitted him. And uh, for one, they did convict. Uh, now, I would have to interview them to understand what, what the distinction w there was, to be honest. But uh, for the first two, that that made sense. He was convicted of the substantive account of obstructing an official proceeding because he did go into the Capitol. But the the conspiracies, he was not convicted of. I mean, the two of the three conspiracies he was not convicted of. Yeah. So let's run down the the basically the chart. And we actually put together a handy dandy chart uh, of who was convicted of what and who was uh, where the jury hung and where the jury is uh, acquitted. What can we say? And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to see if through the magic of uh, zoom, I can actually, uh, and, and YouTube, I can actually put this up here, but um, walk us through what the jury did today. Well, there were 46 counts Everybody was charged with 45 of them. And then Pozzola was charged alone with robbery. That had to do with his stealing a riot shield from a police officer in a, in a very a violent scuffle. 
so there were three conspiracy charges. And as you can see, the four defendants were convicted of all of the, cons- those are counts one, two, and four. Everybody but Pozzola was convicted on seditious conspiracy. Pozzola was acquitted. Everybody but Pozzola was convicted on conspiracy to obstruct of an official proceeding. Uh, that was a, a hung jury as to Pozzola. And then everyone was convicted on conspiracy to prevent officials from discharging uh, their official duties. So walk me through, if you were Merrick Garland, how, or if you were Jack Smith, or if you, I mean, Jack Smith, the special counsel, wasn't responsible for this case, but the the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, or if you were, you know, one of the people responsible for this investigation, how do you feel today? Is this just simply a big win or, or are any of the charges that uh, you lost uh, particularly bothering you? I think this is a huge, unambiguous win. All of the most important counts were convictions. Pozzola was acquitted of seditious conspiracy and not convicted on one of the two others, but he was convicted on other important uh, felonies. And there is a, a logic to what the jury did. The fact that there is a logic to what they did sort of helps the government's chances of having these things be upheld on appeal. It looks like you didn't just have a jury uh, that uh, was angry and, and just uh, went down the jury, the verdict form and uh, guilty, guilty, guilty. Uh, they were discerning. There are 10 counts where they were hung. There are five counts where they acquitted. So it, it, it looks like a discerning jury, which is what you like to be able to tell in appellate court. Incidentally, they, they were very careful. And in fact, they caught a, uh, uh, a typo in the jury verdict form uh, before any of the lawyers or the uh, judge, judge did. So uh, I think it's just pretty unalloyed good news for the government at this stage. Uh, the one count that they returned no verdict on was an assault charge that really was weak. It was an assault charge where a co-conspirator of theirs alleged named Charles Donahoe threw water bottles at the police. But Donahoe was never called as a witness. So that's already a little weak. And then none of the defendants were in the immediate vicinity of Donahoe when he threw these things. So it was a pure theory of what's called co-conspirator liability. If you and Donahoe are both co-conspirators, and throwing water bottles was in furtherance of the conspiracy and, you know, reasonably foreseeable consequence of the conspiracy, you can hold them all responsible. They decided not to do that. And it's kind of like the, the conspiracy version of felony murder if nobody died. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and on top of that, you know, Throwing water bottles at the police, it can be a a bad thing, but without the guy, 
uh, to testify and without somebody that was hit by them to testify, you, you really don't know what you're talking. Were they empty? Were they full? Were they frozen? So that was, uh, and, and actually uh, four of the other charges um, that were uh, hung uh, related to the destruction of that window, the windows that everybody has seen Dominic Pozzola bust out with the stolen riot shield, a very important moment. But they were apparently reluctant to buy into the co-conspirator theory that, you know, Enrique Tario, who was in Baltimore at the time, you know, was responsible for Pozzola uh, breaking out those windows. So, you know, you like to see a discerning jury, and and that's what we seem to have uh, had. I'm sure the defense lawyers don't exactly look at it that way, but but uh, I think that's uh, an arguable way to look at it. So I want to zoom out and look at this in the context of the two Oath Keepers verdicts, one of which involved a case you also covered wall to wall, and the thousand or so other cases that involve lower level folks, as well as the cases that haven't materialized in parentheses yet against anybody in the political echelon. And I want to check in on our ongoing discussion about how the Justice Department is doing. It seems to me there's a a kind of heck of a case at this point that at least as to the actors on the ground on January 6th, they've amassed quite a record. Yes, I, I think so. They've had more than 600 convictions already. They've charged, um, well, I think according to the GW University program of on extremism, they've charged 999 federally. And uh, that does not count some that have been charged in superior court. So it's it's just been a huge uh, and very successful so far investigation. This is now, we now have 14 convictions for seditious conspiracy. That's 10 by uh, juries and four by uh, guilty plea. That's nine Oath Keepers and five Proud Boys. So that's a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, So I I think the Justice Department must be feeling good at the moment. So I want to, again, check in on a question that we've talked about in the context of the Oath Keepers, but to what extent does this case implicate anyone in the political echelon? I noticed that one of the, the two of these, the Proud Boy defendants, very specifically said they were operating on behalf of Donald Trump. I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, no, the, the defense was that everybody was operating on behalf of Donald Trump. Yes, Trump caused the riot. And the riot was spontaneous, not a conspiracy. This would be the defense. And they were scapegoats. Yes, there were 200 Proud Boys present, but they they responded essentially like the other 1,000 or 2,000 January 6th protesters, rioters, the way they did. And so they look at it and say, 
at at twelve seventeen p.m. I think that's the first time, at least this was the evidence. Uh, Trump says, "Go to the Capitol, fight like hell, or you won't have a country anymore." And it's thirty six minutes later that the barricades at the Peace Circle fall, and so they blame Trump uh, for for the riot and everything was spontaneous. That's the defense. But they didn't present any evidence that we didn't already know of Trump's conduct or anybody else's conduct on behalf of Trump, right? What you're describing is just a rhetorical posture or an argumentative posture. Did we learn anything about what Donald Trump did, about what anybody in operating on his behalf did? No, that was not a part of the case. We heard the name Alex Jones a couple times, but it was glancing. It was trivial. No, we really did not. And that's true of the Oath Keepers case too. This was not revealing as far as uh, adding to the case against Donald Trump or anyone around him. So it's fair to say that there really is, if not a hermetic seal or a wall, something of a barrier between the Trump case and the cases involving the political echelon at whatever stage of development they may be. Um, And of course, Mike Pence was just in front of the grand jury. So we know those cases are are proceeding, but there's no, they're really treating them as a separate matter with a separate group of prosecutors, and there's not a lot of admixture between the evidence in them. I think that's right. And um, unless they're planning to charge incitement of insurrection, it seems like the charges, in if, if charges are brought, are likely to be pretty different with with the possible exception of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. It sounds like they have different theories that they're pursuing. So one other thing that we've talked about has been the this question uh, that is now at the in the appellate courts about the uh, availability of certain charges in January 6th cases. To what extent is that charge at issue at all in here. It's not, of course, the seditious conspiracy charge, but there is a, a, a you know, obstructing an official proceeding uh, set of charges. Are any of these cases potentially vulnerable if the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court decides that the word corruptly, you know, requires a pecuniary benefit? Well, Yes, there's there are there were ten counts in this case that were either corrupt obstruction or conspiracy to corruptly obstruct. But the fact that they've obtained convictions in seditious conspiracy and also another conspiracy called conspiracy to prevent officers from discharging their duties, which is another sort of civil war era uh, statute. It's actually. Uh, it's actually the uh, criminal version of the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, or a criminal provision. Uh, that sort of lessens the danger here because even if those charges don't survive, which which is a long way off. I mean, you know, I, I'm concerned about it, but really 
it would be a ways off. And uh, uh, there's a good article that recently written by Randall Elias, and he he thinks they're going to survive, but uh, uh, they're they, they're encountering some turbulence at the appellate level. Those charges. But in this case, though some charges could theoretically be affected or could be affected, depend um, they would not be the lead charge, except maybe in the case of Pozzola, right? That's right. Uh, he was convicted of uh, obstructing. He was also convicted of the third conspiracy charge, the Ku Klux Klan Act charge, but that that has a maximum of 10 years as opposed to 20 years and he was also convicted of some other felonies as well. So it's, it won't be a catastrophe. Uh, there, were, there are, of course, at least 308 other uh, January 6th defendants who have been charged with that, and more than 70 convicted. And uh, some of them are solely, have been solely convicted of that, or that's the only felony. And obviously that, w- that would be a big, big deal. Right. I mean, so so it's fair to say that issue remains on the table. It will or could affect this case, but it won't affect this case catastrophically, though it could affect some other cases catastrophically from a large number from the government's point of view. That's right. That's right. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 
15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. All right, we're going to go to audience questions in a moment. Before we do, though, so what is the big cases that are coming up now? It seems like this was this was the big one in the kind of pig in the python sense. Is is there a Proud Boys 2 or an Oath Keepers 3? Are there big defendants waiting to be tried? I don't think so. There is a there's a 3%er case that's getting some attention, but I don't think it's really on these on this scale. It seems to be a sort of ragtag group. And these are the leaders. There are, I think, about maybe uh, close to three dozen Proud Boys might have been charged with various crimes, but not all conspiracy. But those are smaller cases. So, no, I I think the main arena now is Jack Smith. That is um, where our attention is wandering yeah, so in in a profound sense, you can say if Merrick Garland started this investigation by saying we work from the ground up, they did a whole lot of misdemeanors and 
low-grade felonies, and then they did a bunch of higher-grade felonies, and then they did the seditious conspiracy cases, and now they are looking at the people at the top of the totem pole. Although the Justice Department does say it may have as many of a th- as a thousand more cases to bring it at the street level. How seriously do you take that? That the you know that there we may see, have seen only a, half of the defendants in in these January sixth street cases. Well, uh, it's possible. I did notice uh, one number go down recently. For a long time, they had said that there were 350 people they were looking for on their bulletins. And I think they've recently adjusted that downward to say they're looking for 260 people, some very serious characters. Um, And I shouldn't underestimate, you know, uh, these other cases, they're important cases. They're v- very violent attacks on police officers. 140 police officers were injured. Probably 20% of them have left the force. Many of them, it's hard to tell, you know, the causes, but uh, many of them obviously because of either physical or mental injuries. So those are terribly important cases. They just don't shed a lot of new light. We, we've we seen the brutality in the tunnel archway on the Lower West Terrace, and there are more of those type of cases. Maybe I'll be surprised. And of course, we've still got, nobody ever got to the bottom of those two pipe bombs. But um, and actually, just this week, there was a new charge. Somebody was charged with uh, uh, an explos- throwing an explosive device at police officers uh, in the Lower West Terrace. Um, So there's some surprising things out there, but still, uh, I think if you want to learn about what happened that day and why it happened, this, I think, might have been the most important case. The Oath Keepers, you know, it was a symbolic case, that image of all of them coming up the East Capitol steps in so-called stack formation in, in uh, you know, militia uniform, that was a powerful image, but they really had much less to do with what happened that day than the Proud Boys, who were really the tip of the spear at, at four crucial breaches that, that led to the invasion of the Capitol. I just want to reemphasize that whenever we move as a group at Lawfare, we always move in stack formation and, uh, you know, I, people don't believe it, but, you know, it's, it's the most effective way to get a group from place to place. All right, let's go to audience questions. Shannon asks, I want to know if you think we may see charges for Roger Stone, Ali Alexander, or Alex Jones stemming from this case. If you do not, do you think there could be other charges brought against any of the three in relation to January 6th? So you said before that you heard you heard Alex Jones's men- name mentioned a few times. These guys were kind of in contact with all kinds of people. Uh, what, what did we learn anything about Roger Stone, Ali Alexander, or, or Alex Jones? In this case, there were just 
brief mentions of Alex Jones. The Proud Boys seem to, at one point, near in their first pass past the peace circle, Ethan Nordine says something about, let's try to meet up with Alex Jones here, but that never happens. So uh, we, we never learned more about that. Roger Stone, there were references to him at the, in the Oath Keepers case. Uh, obviously, uh, some of the, there was a contingent of Oath Keepers who were his security detail on January 5th and 6th. But unless Jack Smith has something, uh, you know, nothing I've seen implicates those, those guys. Same with Ali Alexander. I get the impression, you know, Alex Jones was on, on what's called in a restricted zone. So you could charge him with a misdemeanor. They haven't, you know, he's, he's nominally a media guy and he sort of, seems to have hedged his bets in a way that would make it hard to prosecute him. He he said some provocative things, but then he said some calming things. Uh, and he also left the premises when he saw things getting pretty, pretty wild. And um, his top, his right-hand guy, Owen Schroyer, he was charged with a misdemeanor. But, you know, unless Jack Smith has sort of something coming from a different direction, I'm not seeing yet how they would be charged with a, a true something relating to the insurrection itself. All right. So uh, Juliet asks if the jury was having trouble understanding the remaining charges and instructions, did they get any further explanation before returning to continue deliberations? And if not, why not? So this is actually a, a let me zoom that question out a little bit and say when the jury came back, they came back with a partial verdict, not a complete verdict. They then reached additional verdict on at least one count. So like walk us through the events of the day vis-a-vis -vis the jury. Yeah, they passed out 10 notes and uh, the, the early ones were about uh, just sort of gathering evidence. Can you tell us which exhibit number such and such uh, a video was. And then uh, there were some more substantive questions about the instructions. And they were, they were good questions, I think. And then one had to do with this count eight that they eventually rendered no verdicts on. And th that was the water bottles. And what they noticed was at one part of the instructions, it says, you are not to speculate about why charges weren't brought against certain people that were, you may have heard their names mentioned. And then they said, well, how does that interact with this count eight, where the whole crime relates to something Charles Donahoe did, and he was never brought into court, and we don't know what happened to his case. And, uh, of course, I mean, spoiler alert, he pled guilty, but they don't know that. And so it was a good question. And, and originally, the judge wanted to tell them, you know, you shouldn't speculate about the charges against whether charges were brought against Donahoe or something to that effect. But the defense lawyers uh, objected and he ended up saying, I can't give you an answer you know, just go back to the instructions and they hung. 
So I, I think it was a sensible result. I don't know that they had lots of other questions that weren't answered. I think it was just an issue of proof and, uh, you know, jurors in good faith disagreeing with one another. I was surprised they could get the consensus they did on all the crucial counts. There was a point, I think it was around the 13th and 14th, when one juror, when we were still hearing evidence, and one juror had some appointments. And the prosecution didn't want to take two days off. They wanted to get this over with. And there were still three alternates. So they wanted to say, let's dismiss this juror. All five of the defense lawyers said, no, 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 let's keep this juror. So I thought maybe they knew something we didn't. And uh, maybe at some level, uh, they were right, you know, with some of these other counts. But it did not seem to get in the way of uh, unanimous verdicts on all of the crucial counts. There was one other oddity of the jury, which is that they were initially hung on Pozzola and then over the course of the day came to acquit him uh, on the seditious conspiracy charge. How do you read that evolution? Yeah, without without interviewing them, uh, I don't know. But as I said, that he was a different animal in a way. Uh, I mean, speaking metaphorically, uh, a different, he was in a different situation. He really, he was a, a guy that had been involved for two months. You know, these other guys were president of their chapters or chairman of the national group. They were big deal, proud boys. And um, so there was a reason to, to think that he was not a part of this conspiracy and uh, the difference between acquittal and hung is... Can be one vote. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know what happened there, but um, it seems fundamentally consistent with the fact that Pozzola was differently situated. All right. So Dave asks, does the judges relieving the jury of the need further to deliberate mean in effect that he doesn't didn't see a need to spend time on count seven except for Pozzola guilty or count eight as in we've got plenty already uh, I don't I don't think that's the way to look at it they they their last note which I don't think has been published yet but it will be said something in very clear terms about further deliberation is not going to lead to a unanimous verdict. And um, by then they had been deliberating, oh, uh, probably around 35 hours across seven days. They had been listening to the case for 62 days. And I just think he, he thought, and I think basically all the lawyers thought, although some didn't want to go on the record saying it, that enough was enough. They'd done their duty. The gist of this was over. The government didn't need these additional feathers in their their hat, really. An anonymous listener asks, what were the reactions of the defendants and their attorneys and the prosecutors upon hearing the guilty and not guilty verdicts? The defendants were very stoic. I did not see a reaction from Tario 
or uh, real. I couldn't get a good view of most of the others. Before the verdict, they were putting on a, a good face. They had the sort of stiff upper lip sort of thing. Uh, Tario had some uh, smiles. Uh, he uh, seemed to uh, adjust Nordine's tie uh, so he would look better. Uh, defendant Zach Real to me, looked not very optimistic before the verdict. He looked, he seemed to have an inkling this was not going to go well. Jill asks, any sense if it helped or hurt the two defendants who testified? Uh, do you think not guilty on seditious conspiracy for Pozzola had anything to do with his testimony, or was it just that his circumstances were different from the others? That's a good question. Uh, I, I mean, not to distinguish it from the others. That's a that's a good question. They're all good questions. The uh, I think it may well have for Pizzola, may well have helped him. His direct testimony was very good. His cross, I thought, was very bad. So uh, he began to lose his temper. He he said that it was a corrupt trial, and uh, there were phony charges. And I thought the jury might respond negatively to that. But uh, he was a good witness. And also his wife testified. She was a good witness. I actually read that testimony because I, I had to miss that day. But she, uh, I'm told she was a, her, she was a good witness as well. And um, I, I think that may have helped. Real, uh, Zach Real, on the other hand, I think it, pro you know, this speculative, I think it hurt because he too uh, was a little lower rung uh, than the others. And uh, he was not the top rung of the leadership of these chat groups that were focused on January 6th. And there wasn't as much about him or by him in the Telegram chats, but he took the stand and then it turned out the government had found a video of him uh, that looks for all the world like he's pepper spraying police officers. And he had said over and over and over that he uh, never assaulted anybody. And after they showed him some of this footage, they said, now after seeing this and having thought about it overnight, did you assault, did you uh, pepper spray police officers? And he said, I don't recall. So his testimony was pretty bad. I think it hurt him, but Pozzola might well have helped. Roger, if you had ever uh, pepper sprayed a police officer, would you recall? I think it's the kind of thing that I would recall personally. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I, there are a lot of things in my life that I forget, but the pepper spraying incidents tend to stick out in my mind. Uh, Kevin asks, why was Tario found guilty for the fence? Ah, so this relates to destruction of property. There were two destruction of property counts and one related to a metal fence that stretched across the West Plaza and Nordine and Biggs, there was video of Nordine and Biggs apparently helping to tear this out of its anchors uh, into, it was anchored into the concrete. At, they tore it out. This was called breach two. 
Um, this enabled the rioters to surge forward. The police had to withdraw. And also the rioters then dismantled the fence and threw the, what I think you would call pickets, the uh, metal bars that joined the top rail to the bottom rail. They threw those as weapons at the police officers. And why was Tario guilty of that in Baltimore? The same way that he was guilty of most of these things because he was a conspirator. There is this concept called co-conspirator liability. And uh, as with the, uh, it was an unsuccessful theory with respect to the water bottles and, and, and also with respect to the windows, uh, the broken windows, why they made a distinction. Uh, I think possibly the fact that two defendants were intimately involved in the process. So it made it clearer that, yes, this was a, this was in furtherance of the conspiracy. And yes, this was a reasonably foreseeable consequence of the conspiracy. So Ruyi asks or states, would love to hear you guys talk more about seditious conspiracy. So uh, rather than uh, sit here and talk about seditious conspiracy, what I'm going to do is say that there is an enormous amount of material on lawfare about the crime of seditious conspiracy, both historically and its use in a possible use and now successful use in January 6th cases. And these include some genuinely wild cases uh, from the uh, involving Puerto Rican nationalists in the 50s and 60s and 70s, as well as uh, Christian nationalists, and of course, the famous Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman case. So it's a it's a very rich and interesting history involving both successful and unsuccessful prosecutions. And we've had a lot of arguments uh, over the last few years about what the role of seditious conspiracy should be in these cases, because the language of the statute is actually exceptionally broad and uh, doesn't actually require that any violence happen. Uh, but the the Justice Department really uses it effectively as a domestic terrorism statute. And there's been some good writing, particularly by Alan Rosenstein, about how this basically is the American domestic terrorism statute, at least for terrorist acts directed at government. So, uh, Roger, do you have additional general thoughts on seditious conspiracy? No, I, I think that conveys it. All right. We are going to wrap up. The final question is, the big question is, is Ben wearing a dog shirt? And of course, the answer to that question is yes. Dog shirts are daily. Roger Parloff, get some rest. Uh, it's uh, been a lot of days. You're a great American and uh, a lot of people including all of us, really appreciate your coverage of this trial. And uh, we will be back soon. Thanks very much, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. And today, you can't see this, guys, but it is also produced in cooperation with 
Anna Hickey, who is running the live feed, as well as the great Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, who is producing an incredibly high quality recording of the two of us that's much better than you can hear out there in YouTube land. And look, uh, y'all need to do your part to support the Lawfare podcast. You should become a material of supporter of Lawfare if you are not one already. You can do that on Substack. You can do it at patreon.com slash lawfare. And though material support for terrorism is a federal crime, material support for national security websites is not. So you will not be accused of seditious conspiracy if you do it domestically. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the long-suffering Jen Patya Howell, who's going to have to take all this audio and make it into a podcast. Our music is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.